Proverbs chapter 26, we didn't quite get out of the 26th chapter last time together. We went down as far as verse 21. Uh, we'll pick up in verse 22 in this last section in chapter 26. We've noticed the last few verses, it seems kind of the theme being addressed here is the subject of being troublemakers, and I'm sure none of us ever struggle with that, but we may know a few troublemakers here and there in our own lives, and it kind of does seem to be that some of what's being addressed, sort of God's wisdom to caution us against uh, the area of troublemaking. Verse 22, where we left off last time, he picks up telling us there, the words of a talebearer are like tasty trifles. The idea is like a delicious dessert, we might say, a good piece of apple pie or something, whatever your poison is when it comes to desserts. Uh, that's very appetizing. That's the picture there the writer's giving to us. The words of a tailbearer, he says, they're just like tasty trifles. They go down into the inmost body. Now, as we've seen on other occasions in our study through Proverbs, this is another one of the Proverbs that we find repeated here by the Holy Spirit. Again, so reminding us that God found it important not only to state this truth once, not only to give us this instruction of wisdom one time, but to now repetitiously restate the same thing to us once again. This came to us back in chapter 18, verse 8. And the idea here really in our proverb is really speaking about how hearing news and stories sometime maybe of what may be going on, maybe in a certain person's life, or maybe we hear a little bit of juicy information of what's going on in somebody's family life, or maybe in a particular situation, the job place, or maybe even a ministry or a church for that matter, and kind of those things always kind of border on the idea of gossip and secrets and tale-bearing and stories. There's something about that, if we were to be honest in our fleshly nature, that can kind of just tend to be a little bit appetizing to listen to. Just like in the same way you can be completely stuffed from a good dinner and then they bring out the dessert menu, or worse, if they bring out to you the dessert tray and show you those appetizing desserts, and all of a sudden, even though everything in your stomach is begging you, please don't, please stop, there's something within us that's appetized, and we know the indulgence maybe of a good dessert, and, and this is the idea here, is, is hearing news, hearing stories, a talebearer, somebody sharing some information, and there's something about that that is just really appetizing to listen to and to feed upon. The unfortunate thing is what he reminds us is that those things, though they're kind of like tasty trifles, they're kind of like little delicious tidbits of information that our ears just love to indulge, those things, he says, go down into the inmost body. The idea is that information goes in and then it defiles and deposits things inside of my mind about a person, or it deposits thoughts or maybe perspectives into our heart towards a family or towards an individual or whatever. And, and it has this way, unfortunately, to go down inside of us, and then it kind of tends to taint our heart attitude. And because of what we heard about an individual or what we hear about is going on maybe in a family or a situation, we digest those things and they go down inside of us and then they do just tend to have 
an impact in the same way that when you, you know, maybe eat a good dessert and the sugars and the unhealthy stuff it goes in, it, it has an effect on you. Whether you want to realize it or not, it has an impact, impact upon your health. Well, in the same way, mentally and, and emotionally and spiritually, when we hear information sometimes, it can tend to go in and then it may distort our view towards a person. It may make us kind of look at them maybe through shaded glasses in a certain way, and our, our perspective towards them is kind of then sometimes skewed a little bit, and we struggle maybe with having a, a pure heart or a right attitude towards them. Maybe we're more suspicious periodically towards them, or we kind of read into things sometimes. So again, this is why we have to be really careful, not only just on what we say, but even what we choose to listen to. Uh, and what we're willing to kind of digest. There is something about that that we, we kind of enjoy in our flesh to hear things sometimes, but realizing you're indulging that stuff and it's going to have an impact on you. And then you may think or have a different perspective towards someone or a family or, a, again, a, a business or a ministry or whatever it may be, or just a given situation that might taint your perspective and not be good. Verse 23, he says, Fervent lips with a wicked heart are like earthenware covered with silver dross. So like earthenware, that is clay pottery, covered over, painted over with silver. The idea there is even as shiny silver coatings at times were put on clay pottery to change the appearance, to hide the clay pottery underneath, maybe to make it look like it's silver, but the reality is underneath there's something different than what the outward image is portraying. And maybe at times even that, you know, silver was put over top of the earthenware. Certainly it made the uh, vessel look more appealing to onlookers. So the outward indication was appealing. It was hiding what was true underneath. He says in the same way, people at times can cover up their true intentions. They can tr cover up their true condition. Uh, it's something that human beings, unfortunately, are able to do. We can be incredibly deceptive creatures. And so he says here, in the same way, earthenware can be covered to hide that earthenware by just putting attractive silver dross. He says, look, in the same way, somebody may have really fervent lips. They say all the right things. They sound very passionate. They sound very, uh, you know, convincing and so forth. But he says, though they may have really fervent lips and they can really talk the talk and they can really make things sound great by what they say, he says, be aware that there may be a wicked heart behind that. Uh, there may be a different condition underneath. So again, he's just reminding us, wisdom remembers that people at times can cover up their true intentions or conditions or even how they really feel about us. Uh, so again, we want to be careful that we don't instantaneously maybe commit ourselves too quickly to a person just because they say all the right things. Uh, because, you know, smooth talkers are called smooth talkers for a reason, <laughs> Uh, to put people on a slippery slope and to kind of lubricate the relationship dynamic to be able to then get access to what they want. So again, we, we have to be careful. He says sometimes just goes on where people can kind of make things look good with their fervent, passionate lips when underneath their heart's not in the right condition. We have to be cautious and be patient and pay attention, he says. Verse 24, he who hates, he kind of picks up on this same idea, he who hates, look what he says, disguises it with his lips. Well, there's the Bible's commentary on the Bible right there. That's, that's the commentary on what the last verse just said. A person can actually hate, but disguise it 
with their lips by just saying different things, lays up deceit within himself. Verse 25, when he speaks kindly, do not believe him. For there are seven abominations in his heart. Again, seven members, always number of the completeness. So again, there, there's complete abomination, complete disgusting things going on within his heart. Verse 26, though his hatred is covered by deceit, his wickedness will be revealed before the assembly. The idea is that wickedness and that deceitfulness, God says, it may go on for a time, may confuse a lot of people, may deceive a bunch of individuals, but eventually you can never deceive God. You're never going to ultimately get away with things with God. And eventually God does have a way, does he not, where our, the Bible says our sin always finds us out. And eventually things always become known. It's not a matter of when, it's just a, mat a matter of if, it's just a matter really of when. And so he mentions here that even when this is going on, someone's wickedness, he says, in time, whatever the time is, we can't always control that, but he says it will be revealed, and notice not before just an individual, but it gets revealed openly before the assembly, that is in a more public setting. So again, the picture here in verse 24 through 26 is just reinforcing this idea again of wisdom must always use discernment when interacting with people. Be careful. You know, in the same way we talk about you can't judge a book by its cover and we don't want to prematurely dismiss somebody because they could be a really great person in certain ways. Well, in the same way, there's, there's nothing wrong with using discretion and realizing that just a kind exterior, just someone who's always smiling and super nice and saying all the right things, right? I mean, that's how sometimes crooked salesmen make deals, do they not? And I don't mean to say that to pick on salesmen, but I'm using an analogy there, right? If somebody wants to sell you something and, and they want to really take advantage of you or, or kind of rip you off, they're, they're not going to come across in a way that's going to make you feel good. They're going to come across as they're, they're kind, they're using great words, they're going to disguise it with their lips, they're going to speak kindly, and they're going to, they're going to sell things really well. And, and unfortunately, sometimes, just because somebody has a kind exterior or is treating us kindly, that does not always guarantee who someone truly is. It can be a cover-up. And look, I'm not trying to encourage us, because I don't think it's healthy either in anything to go out of balance. I'm not saying that it's healthy for us to become a super suspicious person, and that can be sin and wrong as well. That can be a very unhealthy thing, where we become jaded, right? I found myself gotten like that at times. We, you get jaded, and then you're kind of cynical, and then you're always hyper-suspicious about everybody, and, and that's not good either. But by the same token, God also encourages us not to be naive, not to be foolish, to use discernment, whether it's in a relationship interaction, look, or whether it's just someone who stands behind a podium with a Christian label attached to their life and to their so-called ministry, and they got a big smile, and they always seem so happy, and they always have the great happy news for your life, and, and, and just everything seems so positive and passionate when the reality is, is there may be some things behind that that may not be healthy, and just because of the smile and the, the happy disposition, God would say to us, wisdom is patient and slow and takes time to get to know people relationally. There's just wisdom in that. And just making sure that that kindness is real kindness, making sure there's no ulterior motives, making sure somebody is true to who they seem to be. And look, the only one thing will reveal that. Well, let me change that. Two things reveal that. 
God, of course, because God knows the true intention of every human heart, and time. God and time. So it's always wise to just, Lord, if there's something I need to see, please make it evident. Reveal it, Lord. Protect me. I don't want to be suspicious, but just ask and protect me. Or sometimes God gives us discernment. The Holy Spirit gives us discernment. We need to pay attention to that. The Bible speaks of the discerning of spirits in the New Testament. It's one of the gifts of the manifestations of the Holy Spirit, a discernment of spirits. And, you know, I don't know, something just seems, not that we want to be hyper-suspicious, but there is a time when the Holy Spirit is genuinely protecting people from being naive and giving us discernment for a reason that we might recognize that. You read the book of Acts, you see that on occasion where different individuals would discern something wasn't right. I, I perceive that your heart's not right in the sight of God. And they would call someone out at times and, and recognize those kind of things. So again, God's the one who can reveal. It takes time to do that. So that's why he says, verse 26, though hatred is covered by deceit, his wickedness will be revealed before the assembly. And if God needs to reveal that, we want him to do it. And we need to give God time on occasion to allow us to be careful and, and see that before we get maybe duped or misguided in some way or in an unhealthy relationship. Verse 27, he says, again, of those who might be in this category of troublemakers, whoever digs a pit will fall into it. And he who rolls a stone, the idea is to set it up like a trap. You roll a stone, he says, it will roll back on him. So again, the picture here is when, when people do selfish things with the intention of harming another, digging a pit for somebody to fall into as a trap, setting up a big stone to you know, kind of be like something that would you know, come rolling down to harm or destroy someone. He says, when people do selfish things with the intention of harming others, God's simple point, it often comes back around and comes down on them. We call this at times poetic justice, right? The, the book of uh, Esther is, is a very clear example of this thing. Remember when the, the, the gallows were made there by, by him and ultimately what happened? He ended up creating gallows to hang Mordecai, and he ended up through a turn of events and God intervening in the situation, hanging himself, and really by the way he behaved, he in a sense hung himself on his own gallows. Uh, and so, again, something we need to remember. <laughs> we don't want to try and, hey, well, let me do something. I'm going to get somebody. Guys, be careful. <laughs> you may dig a pit for them and end up falling right in that pit yourself. Uh, so uh, we want to be careful. And regard, I'm going to set him up. I'm going to, you know, God says, be careful. And in the same way, realize if somebody's trying to dig a pit for you or bring selfish intention, God's your defense and, and you rest in that. And God has a way to turn things around and bring about poetic justice, uh, even against those who may try and harm us in an ill way. Verse 28, he then says, a lying tongue. Notice the strong language now, because often we tend to diminish lying, I feel like, uh, in this day and age. A lying tongue hates those who are crushed by it, and a flattering mouth works ruin. I want you to notice that as he's talking about dishonesty, lying, speaking in ways that are false in any way, even just flattering someone to butter them up. You're just kind of trying to grease the gears to, to get what you want out of a person or to get on their good side or manipulate them somehow. Notice the words he uses regarding dishonesty or lying in any way. He says, those who do such hate people, they crush people, and they ruin people. Those are strong terms. Again, with, oh, well, it's just a little white lie. I mean, that is one of the dumbest things that we say as human beings. There's no such thing as a little lie. A lie is just a lie. 
There's such a thing as a white lie, where different color lies have different categories. A lie is a lie. It's just dishonesty. Any form of dishonesty is, is wrong in and of itself. And again, it speaks of the harsh reality of lying here, that it's not some small, insignificant infraction. And look, I, I think it's wise to develop that conviction in our hearts that, Lord, any form of me beginning to be dishonest or even just at times, you know, maybe just speaking just too, you know, uh, quickly and just rambling on with my words and not even paying attention to what I'm saying sometimes. Then we start embellishing stories and, and, and then all of a sudden it's like we're, we're describing something and we've gone way beyond what the, even the reality of something is. We want to be careful. We want to make sure that we're, we're thinking about what we're saying and that we're never allowing ourselves to cross that barrier where for some reason, for someone or for our advantage or because of fear of, oh my goodness, if I'm honest, how are they going to respond or what may happen? Well, look, just honesty is always the best policy, right? We've all heard that before. There's real biblical truth to that. And in the same way, dishonesty is usually the worst policy because it causes such damage. It shows we really don't care about people at all. The Bible says it's, it's a form of hatred towards those, and we end up crushing and ruining people, ruining marriages, ruining lives. Those willing to lie, he says, demonstrate they're willing to do great harm for their own pursuits, to manipulate people, and wise people, the Bible would say, never diminish the horrible thing that lying is or deceiving or any way. May God give us the conviction to have wisdom to, to, to realize, look, Lying is so bad for one primary reason. I'll leave you with this. In some ways, we are never more like the devil than when we're lying, right? What did Jesus say of the devil in John chapter 8? He said, you are of your father, the devil, and when he speaks, he, he speaks lies. And, and when he lies, he's speaking his native language, that the native language of the devil is to lie and to deceive, and so, again, we're, we're behaving in a way much like the devil. I don't think that's something I ever want to diminish. So God help me not to go down that foolish path and to remember it's something very, very harmful that we would do on any level. And it always just grows and metastasizes much larger and worse as cancer because one lie adds to another and more frequency and more frequency. And the deception gets very unhealthy. And let me say, too, don't ever diminish if someone's being dishonest with you. That's a serious infraction. Don't try and gloss that. That's a big deal. And if it's happened, you should address it as a big deal if you're on the end of being wounded or being the victimized person when someone's been dishonest as well. You should deal with that in a very serious manner. Chapter 27, he then says to us, do not boast about tomorrow, for you do not know what a day may bring forth. So again, great little proverb here reminding us of the error of being overconfident and putting too much stock in what we're going to do or what's going to come to pass. Wisdom here cautions us, and, and please don't misunderstand. Wisdom cautions us not that it's wrong to, to use stewardship, not that it's wrong to plan for things, to think about the future. We've read plenty of Proverbs about that, about planning, thinking ahead. That's wisdom. That's good stewardship. Nothing wrong with doing that. But when we make our plans, we should always make our plans in pencil. We should make our plans with pencil and hand God the eraser, because if we don't, he's going to take us the eraser from us anyway, because he's sovereign, right? And God's going to do what God is going to do. And so it's unwise to become, the idea is, is somewhat 
overconfident. That's what boasting is, right? Boasting is a sense of you're, you're ultra confident. You know, you boast in sports. You know, you're going to knock this guy out or you're going to win the game. And boasting is just overconfidence. It's presumptiveness, assuming that something is definitely going to happen. And look, we live in a world where, you know, it just seems like day after day comes and this seems so certain and this seems so sure and this seems so, and that, that we just sometimes get in this rhythm where we can have this tendency to just assume what's going to happen tomorrow, happen next week, happen, and God says, look, don't boast about what's going to do or act or speak in a way like we're certain about what's going to transpire or what we're going to do as if it's a guarantee because the reality is nothing is really guaranteed. The Bible only guarantees us one word, today. That, that's, all the, that's why the Bible says today is the day of salvation. Now is the acceptable time. And again, we're guaranteed today, the day that we're in, and he says right here, don't be overconfident about tomorrow because you and I don't know what a day may bring forth. The idea is what may happen or not happen the next day, despite how things look or how things have been for so long or it's so secure or it's been going so... Everything can change, can it not, literally overnight. Literally overnight. Anything can happen. We can have a health episode, a heart attack. I mean, anything can happen overnight. An auto accident. I mean, and that's just on the practical level. And things can change overnight. Look, in both ways. There can be good changes. So good things could come to pass overnight. That's, that's Joseph's life's an example of that, right? Think of all Joseph went through and bum, 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 bum. And, 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 and then all of a sudden, one day, Overnight, the guy goes from the prison to the palace, and the prime minister of, of, of and it, overnight everything changes. So he says, "Look, don't don't be overly confident about you know tomorrow." He says, "You don't even know what a day is. something. There can be a great turn of events in our lives overnight. God can do that, but in the same way, we have to have humility and recognize a bad and unfortunate thing can happen overnight." We could lose our life. A loved one could lose their life. You know, a, a, a situation can transpire. You know, some circumstantial change can happen that has a very negative or difficult or harmful effect upon our circumstances. And literally overnight, things can transpire and go in a different way. So he just says, look, always live in light of that reality. Nothing wrong with planning for the future, but don't become overconfident. Nothing's a guarantee. You never know what one day may bring forth. Again, the New Testament equivalent to this same passage, if you want to look at it, James chapter 4, verse 13 to 17, the same concepts are conveyed there in the book of James, that we shouldn't boast about tomorrow saying, you know, this, we're going we're gonna to go to such and such a city, and we're going to buy and sell, and we're going to be there for a year, and we're going to make all this money and a profit, and, and he says, well, what do you do? You don't know what a day is going to bring forth. How do you know for certain that business venture is going to work, and you're going to make all that money, and now you're going to go to this city, and you're going to do that, and God's, you don't even know what's coming tomorrow. But yet you're so confident what you're, and that's, I always find it humorous though, the whole five-year plan concept, right? We do that. And that's become a ministry concept these days. I mean, I have dialogue. What's your five-year plan? Go to heaven? I, I, I don't know. Keep reading and talking about the Bible and keep people praying, keep ministering to people, uh, keep sharing the gospel, out of bullets. <laughs> I, I don't know what the five-year plan is. And, and again, sometimes we do this with good intention, but 
God keeps us on our toes to remind us we live life in a very, very daily manner, and there's nothing wrong with that. You know, give us this day our daily bread, Lord. And so it's just good to keep that humility, not be overconfident, boasting about tomorrow in a way that's unhealthy. We should be saying, Lord, if you will, this is what I'm going to do tomorrow. If it be your will, Lord, this is what I desire and think I'll be doing next week or next month. And that's the idea, Lord. This is what we're doing if the Lord wills, but the Lord may not will. Something may change or transpire. So again, that, that's the idea, just entrusting it to the Lord with an open hand. And then again, we shouldn't boast about tomorrow. Verse 2, he also says we shouldn't also boast about ourselves. Look what he says, verse 2. Let another man praise you and not your own mouth, a stranger and not your own lips. So here, the writer giving us wisdom to warn us to be on guard against this natural tendency. We use this term to toot our own horn. That that would be a good description if you want to summarize verse 2 there. God says, wisdom learns, don't toot your own horn. Be careful of that tendency to blow the horn by the way that you speak about yourself or the way that you're speaking regarding yourself in a manner where you're drawing attention and kind of in a way, you know, garnering praise. The idea is garnering admiration to impress others. I think the, the principle he's laying down here is wise people need to beware of self-promotion. We want to be very careful of of self-promotion. And let me just say, whether that is done knowingly or even unconsciously, because I think it can happen in all of our lives either way. Sometimes, yes, it can be done very blatantly and very knowingly and consciously, but then sometimes just we're human, we're fractured, we're sinful, and so sometimes it's almost like unconsciously we're kind of self-promoting and selling ourself, and, uh, and, and he just says, look, where you're speaking in a manner of yourself or maybe about what things you've done or what things you do and telling your history, and, te- and all of a sudden, it's coming across in a way where you're obtaining admiration for yourself, and you're causing people, in a sense, to be at, you know, admiring you. Look, the bottom line, we all know a truly praiseworthy person does not need to identify their value. They don't have to sell themselves. If somebody is truly a praiseworthy person, others will be speaking highly of them without them having anything to do with it. It will just happen. Others at times will, we say, sing their praises. That I, you know, It will just happen naturally. Other people will speak well of them. Other people will praise them and who they are in their character or what things they've done. And that's in a healthy way. The idea is honoring them through just natural compliments, giving them credit for their praiseworthiness or something they've done. So wise people, God would say, seek to refrain from advertising themselves, and they wisely in humility just let and even, I believe, prefer others to speak any such things about them. They don't like talking about themselves. And even when people would praise them, they they tend to become awkward about it because it's just not their nature to want to do that. And so, again, great truth here regarding this idea of being careful to just let others say good things about you. Be careful of saying good things and and kind of advertising self-promotion yourself. And and I'll say this quickly because I could rant about it forever, and my wife would know this, but I, I promise I won't. To me, I feel like that this is one of the biggest plagues of social media. And, and, and I don't do social media, so I, I can rant on it for a moment because I'm not a hypocrite. I, I can't even do it because it disgusts me that much. 
because I feel like something that was, you know, had, can have a good facet and was created for a, a good purpose, like everything. You know, the internet had a great purpose, but then the internet got hijacked, and like everything in life, right? Money can be used for a good thing, it can get hijacked for a bad thing. But I feel like that this is one of the biggest plagues with social media, it is because it gets utilized by people in a way where all it becomes in some ways, it seems like, is just self-advertising. It's, just, you know, look at me, I'm doing this. Look at me, I'm doing that. Look at me, I'm on vacation in wherever, you know, Jamaica, and you're going, man, look at me, it's 47 degrees and raining. And what am I doing? My life's horrible. God doesn't love me. You're in the sun. That's the second time you've been in the sun this year. I haven't gone on a vacation in three years. What am I doing? And, and my point in that is, first of all, half the time I think all it does is just make everybody feel bad. Oh, look at me in my new car, ain't I cool? Well, I'm still driving around a clunker, and it just makes everybody feel bad. Not to mention, who cares? I don't need to know what you're doing. How did we exist all these centuries never knowing half the time what anybody else was doing unless we accidentally bumped into them or found out. Just, but now we live in a generation where we have to advertise it to everybody. We have to show everybody what we're doing. And again, uh, it really there's balance in all things, and I'll stop my rant right there, but I feel like this is one of the real downsides to this because it just gives people a platform to, and again, I'm going back to this, I'm not saying all people are doing it blatantly. Sometimes it's just that there's an unconscious, subtle thing, and people don't, don't even recognize, like, do you realize that's what you're always doing? It's, in a sense, that's what you're doing. You're, you're drawing admiration and advertising what you're doing all the time, and I just think it just becomes a very unfortunate use, I guess I'll say that, of how social media can tend to work at times. My apology, there's my rant. I'll move on to verse 3 and teach the Bible again. Verse 3, a stone is a... Heavy and sand is weighty, but a fool's wrath is heavier than both of them. So those substances, right, like stone and sand, and especially if those things are wet, right? I mean, they, they can be really heavy. They can be really draining to move around. Though these are very heavy substances, they can still be moved and managed, but a lot of times it's very hard and draining to, to do such, I remember before we, I was getting our shed installed in the backyard, and a couple of the guys from the church came over and helped me to, you know, dig down a few inches and then lay all this stone in there. And man, I just thank goodness a couple of the younger guys were nice enough to help me. I was like exhausted for four days afterwards, and I didn't do 25% of what the rest of them did. Those things can be really draining, you know, stone and sand. You can manage it, but boy, it, it wears you out because it's very heavy and hard to manage. And he says... In the same way, there's the analogy, in an even greater manner, he says, but a fool's wrath is heavier than both of those, than stone and sand. And what he's doing there is drawing a picture saying, interacting with a foolish person, can it not? It can be a really heavy burden that's very hard to manage sometimes. When you're interacting with someone who's acting like a fool or maybe has no control over their emotions, they're always an agitated person, they're always high maintenance, you know, always acting foolish, he says, just like lugging around stone and sand and it's draining and exhausting, he says, sometimes individuals can become like that. They are just draining mentally and emotionally and you find yourself just exhausted because you're trying to manage 
someone who maybe has come into your life and, uh, and they're just acting like a fool and they're just someone who's always emotionally you know, disturbed and so forth. He says it can be much heavier than even both sand and stone. Verse 4, wrath is cruel. Anger is a torrent. So again, uh, something that's a, a, a powerful force, a torrent. Cruelty, something that's very harmful and cruel. And then he says that's what anger can be like or wrath. But who is able to stand before jealousy? So the picture here is wrath and anger can be a strong force, and it can bring about some really cruel things. But then he goes on to say jealousy can even be more intense, and it can actually even be jealousy more destructive than even the wrath of man. And I I think the reason why would simply be this, if you think it through. Anger tends to come in strong force and wrathful emotion, but then anger then kind of subsides, right? You get real angry or somebody blows their top or just has a wrathful moment, but then after a little bit of time, you know, the wrath settles down and the anger kind of diminishes and the person comes back into out of temporary insanity from their extreme anger. But jealousy tends to linger. There's something about jealousy that tends to take root inside of us. And when we start to become jealous of someone or jealous of a situation, jealousy is one of those things that kind of takes root and envy, and it just grows worse and worse and worse and worse, and sometimes can end up being way worse in the outcomes. I mean, think of the things that have happened, even in the Word of God, just a few examples of jealousy. Cain murders his brother Abel, murders his own family member, literally murders his own sibling just out of jealousy, jealousy unchecked, jealousy that got that far out of control. Think of the story of Saul and David, right? Saul became jealous of David and God's hand upon David's life and could not accept the reality that God's hand was upon David's life and was going to use David instead of using him, and it made him so jealous. I mean, think of how Saul behaved towards David. Jesus himself, the religious leaders, they became jealous of Jesus. Look what they did to Jesus. So again, jealousy is not something to be underestimated. The Bible says it can actually be a worse thing than even the wrath and the anger of a person. Verse 5 and 6, he says, Open rebuke is better than love carefully concealed, and faithful are the wounds of a friend, but the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. This speaks of, again, this reality of having to speak to a person in a way where you're correcting their faults, where you're addressing the errors in their lives or wrong ideas of other people and and how that's a really challenging thing to do. Again, it's, it's not something typically that most of us prefer to have to engage in. Many times we're trying to avert it Oh, I don't have to do that. I don't just. I, nobody really enjoys that process of you know engaging someone to point out their mistake or to identify an error in their life or to confront them regarding something maybe they're doing wrong or to correct their faults. Uh, that's not usually something that's a preferable thing to do because you never know how they're going to respond and then what's going to happen afterwards and and who wants the confrontation and the tension and the awkwardness and. So a lot of times we prefer not to do that, again, but here he says that genuinely caring about a person will actually 
be the thing that gives us the wisdom to realize if I truly care about them, then I should be willing to risk the awkwardness and even risk their being maybe frustrated with me or misunderstanding me at first or even getting angry with me or upset with me to speak to them something maybe that is needful to hear about correcting some fault in their life uh, and that it's better to do that than to act as if we care about someone but then hold back from speaking something into their life that's maybe corrective that they need to hear. He says, open rebuke, and that's what rebuke is. Rebuke is to challenge someone, to confront them. He says, open rebuke, not holding back. That's better. That's better, God says. Better to do that. doesn't say easier, right? (laughs) That's not true. But it's better, God says, than saying you love someone and concealing from them what they maybe really need to hear if there's some corrective thing that needs to be addressed in their life. And God says this is where true relationships are really built out of. You can tell what relationships are true, genuine, sincere relationships. A lot of times we call friendships in our life friendships, and really they're they're just associates. They're just people we interact with. You'll know who the true friends are in your life many times in the worst times in your life or in the times when you really need them the most to say things to you, those who really care about you, because he says, verse 6, faithful are the wounds of a friend. That is someone who genuinely loves you is willing, as hard as it may be, to even wound your pride or, or, or even to a degree kind of maybe wound temporarily, wound the relationship by, you know, kind of not sticking the knife in your back and backstabbing you, but they they just stick the knife right in your gut, right in front of you, or they just slap you right across the face as a brother or sister in the Lord, and I'm saying that in an analogy, don't do that for real, but because they're willing to get your attention. And so he says, faithful are those friends who are actually willing to do that in our life and deceitful are kind of the kisses of an enemy. You remember how Jesus was betrayed, how Absalom betrayed through kisses, So he says, people kissing up to you just to make you feel good and go easy. He says, that's not real relationship. Real relationships will be evident by those who risk offending and wounding our spirit to help us and to protect us and to say something, hey, even though you may get upset with me, I'd rather tell you this than see you keep going down the wrong path or see you suffer something worse because I sat by silent to protect myself. Uh, in the situation. That's the idea there. Verse 7, a satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb, but to a hungry soul, every bitter thing is sweet. So this proverb advises us to be careful of not being uh, properly grateful for things as we ought to be. And this is something at times that we can err in. He, He speaks of how if you're full and satisfied, if you have all that you need, a satisfied soul loathes the honeycomb. Honeycomb is something good for you. It's something that typically people would love to have a piece of honeycomb. But he says, if you're full and satisfied and have all you need, then you don't appreciate even good things at times. There can tend to be that thing where if you have everything you need, then all of a sudden it's amazing how you start losing appreciation for even good things in life. Even the simplest of things, simple benefits. In fact, you may even, he says, start to loathe or despise good things where you really devalue things and I diminish proper appreciation for them and kind of lose capacity to be appreciative. And boy, that can be a real troublesome path when we start losing capacity in our lives to truly be appreciative for good things that we should. 
And that can cause a real problem and cause us to behave very foolishly. But he says, in contrast, when somebody's hungry, a hungry soul, every bitter thing <laughs> tastes sweet to them. Again, if you're starving, anything tastes good, right? And you appreciate any form of food. And this is the picture here, not just in a physical sense, uh, that's true certainly, but, but in all senses, you know, that, that if we find ourselves, you know, blessed and fulfilled and prospered, you have to be careful in that condition because sometimes, you know, you can begin to start really just starting to have an unappreciative attitude. And things that are good and valuable, you, you tend to start you know, not appreciating them, and I lose capacity to be grateful for things. But amazing how when you're struggling in life, when you have less or you have little, how all of a sudden you're grateful for everything. You're grateful for things in ways you were never grateful for. And you appreciate things on a whole new level in your life. And I think God here just is kind of cautioning us with his wise advice that as we increase and have more, we're blessed. We got to be careful of losing perspective and not valuing things the way that we should and losing an appreciative attitude. And many times just for the simplest of things. How many people, because of a lack of capacity to appreciate just the simple good things they had in their life, their health, a good marriage, a, you know, a, a, a healthy family, and, and just you know, something to do and, and a job. And, and, and they, they go chasing all because they, they stop appreciating. And then they go chase everything, and they find out someday, man, oh, man, if I just would not have lost the capacity to just appreciate how good I really had it, how good things really were, I wouldn't have went off and done those dumb things. I wouldn't have made that mistake if I would have just been appreciative and grateful and thankful for just the simple things in front of me. And boy, that's something that really can be a wise thing to steer us on track or a foolish thing to make us go off track when we become an unappreciative person. And, you know, I think verse 7 can be applied as well just in a sense on the opposite sense of one of the best ways to keep ourselves from craving all these other things that we think we need that are tantalizing spiritually is just to have a satisfied soul. Just have a satisfied soul, and I'm flipping the proverb principle around here, but if you have a satisfied soul spiritually, you won't need all the syrupy sweet this and what's the newest sensational spiritual thing happening, and let me, just, what, what, I better go get some of that. And, let me, and God says, if your soul's satisfied, you're not going to be craving that stuff. The problem is, is when somebody's hole is empty and vacant and they're not experiencing God, they'll go eat anything. They'll go digest anything because they're starving and their soul is not fulfilled. So a great way to keep ourselves in check, keep our soul fulfilled. It helps us to not crave things that sometimes we just don't need. Verse 8, like a bird that wanders from its nest is a man who wanders from his place. So though birds are intended to go out and fly around and, and to a degree to explore outside the nest, that nest is also where they return to because it's kind of the boundary that keeps them safe and anchored and protected. But when a bird flees too far, or if a bird flees too often, or if a bird prematurely wanders from the nest before it's time to wander from the nest, from those established boundaries, then that bird puts itself at risk. And then that bird puts itself in a vulnerable place where something harmful can happen. And he says the same exists when a man wanders from their place. I mean, a, a person wanders from their calling. When they wander maybe from safe, established boundaries, a little too far from the nest, when maybe they should stay in the boundaries that God has them in, it's never wise to wander from where the Lord has placed you. 
And if the Lord has given you that nest, that place, that those established boundaries that are your nest, God's just saying, look, just stay in the nest. Those boundaries exist to keep you safe. Wandering outside of boundaries is many, many times we put ourselves at risk. We get into troubles. We end up caught like a bird in a snare, in a trap, and we find ourselves in a dangerous place, never wise to wander, know where the Lord has placed you, and, and stay there. Be careful of wandering. Be careful of allowing yourself to do that. Be careful of wandering as well, maybe even prematurely before you're not supposed to go wandering or trying to fly out of the nest before it's time to fly out of the nest. God says there, there's a, a wisdom to that. I think the caution here is against, I know we don't use this word much, but the caution here is kind of against wanderlust. We, that's an actual word if you look it up. And some people struggle with that, wanderlust. And, and wanderlust is basically kind of this tendency to always be wandering from things. You could just kind of can't stay anchored. You just you always tend to keep wandering after the next thing or the new thing, and you just can never kind of settle in, be content, you know, nestle into your nest and just nest there. <laughs> just nest there. And not have to always wander, let me wander and, and, and always, what about that? And what about this? And and trying this new thing and that next thing. And, and yes, that can be a an unhealthy thing. Learn to remain content where you should. God says that's wise. Settle down, stay at something, God says. That's that's a good thing. Certainly birds go out here and there, but it's also good to kind of stay put where you're supposed to be. A wise believer finds their place, they know their place, and then they stay in their lane, God would say. And just stay in your lane. Know your place, find your place in the body of Christ, and stay in your lane unless the Lord prompts you, unless the Lord's pushing you out of the nest. And he does that sometimes, but but don't prematurely do that in a way where it's not healthy, or maybe you're wandering and you're really not being led of the Spirit. And again, those are two different things. In the New Testament, the book of Acts, it, it speaks of those who went out and those who were sent out. They're two totally different things. There are people at times who have went out to do something in good intention, and they weren't truly sent out by the Spirit of the Lord. The first is of the flesh. The second is something of the Spirit that God can do, where he pushes us out of the nest from time to time, and sometimes that's to teach us to fly in the other end of that. Verse 9, ointment and perfume delight the heart, and sweetness of a man's friend gives delight by hearty counsel. Now, the, the imagery there, verse 9, ointment and perfume delight the heart. Understand, in that culture, they use ointments and perfumes not like we do today to make ourselves smell good and, and to give off a fruity fragrance or to you know, draw in somebody if we're a single person. The ointment and perfume was basically used to subdue your stench because they didn't bathe very much, and people sweat a lot, and it wasn't very hygienic, and so because they didn't bathe often, most people had a pretty strong radiant body odor. So ointment and perfume was basically used in a way to kind of offset unpleasant experiences with other people because of unpleasant things that were radiating off of your life. And God says here, in the same way ointment and perfume subdued the unpleasant part of you and gave people a better experience, God says, in the same way, a good friend, the sweetness of a man's friend gives delight by hearty counsel. In other words, having a good friend who just you can have heart-to-heart -heart conversations with and you just speak counsel in each other's lives, he says one of the great benefits, it's like a perfume because what that interaction with a friend does who speaks insight into our life and heart-to-heart -heart conversations is they help us overcome unpleasant things about ourselves. 
They help us to recognize things where we need to grow, and they speak into our lives in a way whereby they make our life better, and therefore it's a better experience for us in this life by having the benefit of that friendship. Now, emphasizing the value of friendship, that's why he says, verse 10, do not forsake your own friend or your father's friend. They're a long-term friend, the benefit of your father's friend. Nor go to your brother's house in the day of your calamity. Better is a neighbor nearby than a brother far away. So having spoken the value of friends numerous times here, he talked about faith for the wounds of a friend. He talked about having a good friend in your life, helps get some of the unpleasant stuff out of your life, make you a better person, you know, a better life experience. Now he speaks about how wise people in light of that remain loyal to good long-term solid friendships. And they realize the value of a good, long-term, solid friendship. And he says, don't forsake your friend or even your father's friend. The idea is, God says, it's wise to be a loyal person. Be a good, loyal person. God's given you a comrade. God's given you maybe a a long-term family comrade that's been a part of your family. God says, don't diminish that. It's not right, nor is it wise to neglect a person relationally that maybe has been connected to you and kind of neglect them and then just go running to them in the day of calamity. God says that we, we shouldn't treat people like, we don't want to use people like a resource where we don't really honor their friendship, we don't maintain a loyal commitment in the relationship, but then we just go running to them in the day of calamity, treating them like a resource to bail us out of a problem. God says that that's not wise. It's not a healthy way to maintain good relationships. Better to have built and maintained a good relationship, even if it's just a few, have some close comrades on the battlefield. Better to have that than to have a brother who you become really disconnected with because maybe you've kind of despised and not been a loyal and a committed friend. Verse 11, my son be wise and make my heart glad that I may answer him who reproaches me. So as a parent or an overseer desires the one under their supervision to be wise, means to live well, to make good choices in the way that they live. He says, that will make me glad. But also he says, for that parent or the person who's an overseer, wants to see someone do well, it's also a wonderful way to diffuse critics who would basically speak reproachfully and question how they've raised their child or how they've trained this person and who they've invested into, because sometimes that happens. Oh, I can't believe you're brainwashing your children with that Bible stuff. Oh, I can't, you don't give them a chance to choose. They deserve the right to, ch- and, and they, they mock and they criticize the way a parent may want to raise their kids in godly ways according to the word of God, and they want to reproach and mock, but you know, mock away. Mock away. And, and let's see when they turn 18, 19, 20, 22, 25, 27, 30. Let's see whose kid is living well. You let them live how they want. I'm going to give them input and guidance and try and train them God's way, the right way to live. And, and that'll just, might take 20 years, but 20 years from now, we'll see who was right and who was wrong. And so God says the benefit of that, he says, be wise, my son, make my heart glad, he says, so that then I can answer him who reproaches me and mocks the idea. Verse 12, a prudent man foresees evil and hides himself, the simple pass on and are punished. Now, again, here's another proverb stated again repetitiously. Chapter 22, verse 3 said the same thing, that if we see a bad income or a bad, excuse me, bad outcome coming down the road, we recognize, hey, if I stay on this path, 
there's a bad outcome on this path, and you can kind of see it. There's something harmful. If I stay on this path, it's going to bring problems, whether you're seeing it yourself or others are telling you, hey, you that's not a good path you're on. He says, a prudent person who thinks beyond the moment, that's what prudence is, thinking beyond the moment, considering tomorrow, next week, next month, next year, they look to the future. If they foresee evil, they hide themselves. That is, they get off the path. They preserve themselves. They get off the wrong direction that they're going so that they don't end up disregarding the warning signs and suffering down the road. And he says, the simple, the foolish person, they just pass on. They blow past the blinking warning signs and they end up suffering punishment, their own self-inflicted pain and problems in their life. Again, why? Because the Lord, does he not? He always sends us caution signs. He always does, especially when we're on a path towards evil and being punished, certainly in the most clearest way. You know, when people are on a path towards, towards you know, damnation spiritually, that's, of course, the worst path to be on, and to just keep plowing forward, rejecting Jesus Christ, and someday experience the outcome of being punished eternally. But in all of our lives, it's wise at times to realize, hey, if I'm on a wrong path and you recognize it or it's been identified to you by the faithful friend who wounded you and told you that, God says the wise person who's prudent says, you know what, I do foresee this doesn't have a good ending. <laughs> so, so let me just take the next exit ramp right away. And he says that, that's a wise thing to do. Don't be foolish and Press forward unnecessarily and suffer for such. Verse 13, take the garment of him who's surety for a stranger and hold it in pledge. The idea is a deposit when he is surety for a seductress. The basic imagery here in verse 13, it's speaking of the wisdom of, of kind of the value of taking a form of what we might call collateral in a business transaction uh, to, to guarantee the final payment or the conclusion of the transaction. God speaks of taking the garment or, or taking surety, holding something as a pledge. God says, that's not unkind. God says, that's just wise. We call that kind of thing a down payment, you know, something just not always trusting somebody's going to follow through, but God says, no, there's something wise in doing business and interactions to take a deposit, to take a guarantee that somebody's going to follow through, and then you don't have pain and problems on the back end because you set things up in a wise way. God says, that's just wisdom. Verse 14, he who blesses his friend with a loud voice rising early in the morning it will be counted a curse to him. So this speaks of, notice, even good things, and we may say right things. I mean, it's a good thing. It's a right thing to bless your friend, to pronounce a blessing upon someone or to do something to bless someone, to, to speak the word of the Lord to someone. He says, he who blesses his friend, that's a good thing. But notice, you can go about that a wrong way. He says, doing it with a loud voice rising early in the morning. Again, you know, walking into your, you know, whatever, you know, your, your roommate's room and praise ye the Lord at, at 4.30 in the morning. I, I don't think, no, I don't want to praise the Lord. I want to strangle your neck right now. I don't want to praise the Lord. <laughs> or you go and start reading the word of God real loud. Just, no, if you want to get up at 4.30 in the morning, that's on you. But now, see, what was intended to be a blessing has now become a curse and a miserable thing. So again, in life, it's not just God would remind us it's not just trying to do the right thing. It's not trying to speak the right things or to speak in a way to bless someone. Yes, that's good, but God says you got to pay attention that you go about it the right way and you go about it also at the right time. 
He talks about doing it early in the morning and doing it really loud. Those two things don't go together well when somebody's resting and doesn't want to be disturbed, right? So it's just a reminder to us. We have to pay attention to the right way to do things. It's not just doing the right thing always in life. There's a right way to do the right things. There's a right way to go about it. And sometimes we can do a right thing in a wrong way, and what was meant to be a blessing ends up really becoming a, a, a curse in someone's life. And in the same way with timing, whether it's speaking to someone, it's not just the right way to speak to them, but sometimes there's also the right time. When's the right time? Maybe it's not at 4.30 in the morning. Maybe it's not today. Maybe it's the next day after praying, or maybe it's a week and, or that we look for the right time to convey information. So again, just being sensitive to these things, God says, this is wisdom because failure here can turn a, a good thing into a bad experience. And that's not what we want, right? So God says, use wisdom in regards to this. Wise people are sensitive in how they interact with others so they don't come across in a way that's obnoxious or speak in a way that is gonna just kind of be resisted and shut down rather than something that they're receptive to that may help them and really benefit them in their lives.